We're, um, we'll be taking up an offering at the end of this uh, session to help pay for Coakley's visit to the psychiatrist. We, uh, I, I don't, I, he could not have been in his right mind when he said that. I, something's wrong with him. Check his temperature back there. Watch him on the way out. See if he kind of wanders around aimlessly in the parking lot, having lost his way in life. Go Tigers. Never thought I'd heard him say that. Go Tigers. <laughs> All right. This is a big, big, big weekend for us. All right. Let's uh, take our Bibles, Second uh, Peter chapter 1. And uh, we have been looking at what Peter had to say about how it is that we're going to grow. And I, I suppose that every one of us would say, you know what? I'd like to be effective. I'd like to be productive. And I'd like to be confident. I'd like to be assured. It's amazing that Peter's dressing, addressing such uh, relevant issues to us in our own day. But we saw last time that he showed how God does a massive work within us. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But God does a massive work within us. So he's at work within us. But then at the same time, we're going to see that we're doing a work as well. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day, and I, I actually complimented them for something they did. And uh, they said, oh, no, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. Actually, it was my wife. And uh, I said, no, it was you. It was you. No, 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 it was the Lord. I said, it was the Lord and it was you. So it is true. It's not just you. That'd be a mistake. But if you just say, oh, it's just the Lord. I had nothing to do with it. No, that's not true. You did have something to do with it. You see, the, the wonder of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is that he does take over, but he does it through you. So you are consciously at work and you are consciously uh, developing your own life. But he's the one who's doing it through you. So it's both you and the Lord. That's called synergy. Two energies or multiple energies. Uh, in, in the new birth, for example, that's mon uh, monergistic. One energy. God gives us new birth. And the only thing we contribute to our new birth is the sin that made it necessary. We had nothing to do with that possibly. He did it. But in sanctification, we work together. Now, of course, we know who the major partner is here. There's no doubt about it. You know, he owns the store. But he allows us to come along as his adopted sons and to participate in his divine power. Before we read the text this morning, keep your finger there. Turn back to Philippians. And, and let's look at a Pauline way of expressing this that is classic. It's sort of the key text on this. Uh, in, in Philippians, this is page 1921. In your spirit of the Reformation Study Bible, of Philippians 2, uh, verse 12, having described Christ's humiliation and his exaltation, Paul then says, Philippians 2, 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, look at this, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it's something you work out. But then look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. So it's not God over here doing His part and you're over here doing your part and together you get it done. No, it's God overall working through us to get the job done. So it's a massive, immense, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God 
willing to walk in us and work through us. So we do it with fear and trembling because our salvation is a work of God. It's being worked out right now. He is personally at work in your life. That's the reason it's with fear and trembling. That is with reverence and awe, with care, with diligence. But it's also work. It's very, very hard work. Now back to Second Peter. So Peter, in his language, he showed us last time, and we'll go back to these details in just a moment, what God actually did for us. But he, he alludes to that in verses 3 through 4. And now in verse 5 through 11, he's going to look at it from the human perspective. We now know what God is doing in us, what He has done for us, what He's doing in us, and what He will do. And it's three tenses. God has done something for us. He elected us from all eternity. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. He is now working the Spirit right now, personally, at work in us. And one day, He will deliver us into the eternal kingdom. So God is at work. But in verses 5 through 11, we see that we're at work, very hard work, to get the job done so that we're productive, we're effective, and we're assured in what we're doing. And these are very important uh, objectives for us as human beings. Who wants to continue living life and not being productive? It's very difficult when, when uh, you get really sick or you get really old and you're confined to your bed and you feel like you're not productive. Now, we're going to see in the Christian life your production doesn't end when you're on your bed. But you know how difficult it is for us if we're used to being productive in the marketplace and all of a sudden we're set aside. We want to be productive. We were made to be productive. And Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit. And so for those of us who are walking with Jesus Christ, we know the whole purpose of our discipleship is to be productive, to bear fruit for him. And men are meant to be productive in the marketplace and productive in the church and productive in the community. And we're certainly meant to be effective. Who wants to waste their time doing things that don't count or doing them in inefficient ways? And we're meant to be assured. And you know as well as I do that about 50%, if not more, of your success in the marketplace has to do with your level of confidence. Who wants a doctor to come in? Well, gee, I don't, not only do I know what's wrong with you, but I'm not sure I can do this. Uh, <laughs> please don't give me a surgeon like that. I'm, I'm running with you for my life. And who wants a salesman who says, I'm not sure our product really works. <laughs> hey, how about a few sales, you know? Uh, nobody's going to deal with someone like that. So we know how important confidence is. Now, the point is, you don't want to be confident about the wrong things. That's just being arrogant. That's being a fool to be confident about something that is not real. So we want to be assured about the real things. And certainly, in order to be an effective and productive Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to be confident in your relationship with him. Peter's going to show us how that works. So we know God's at work with us, and now there's work that we're going to do that's going to produce productivity, effectiveness, and self-confidence in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's look at it, beginning with, verses, uh, with verse 5, reading through 11. For this, reason, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. 
Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, the first thing that Peter is saying is your faith must grow. If something is alive, it grows. If you're alive spiritually, you're going to grow. And as one of my good uh, Christian friends years ago told me, if you ain't growing, you ain't going. So if you are going with Jesus Christ, you're going to be growing with Jesus Christ. And our faith must grow. Why? Well, first of all, because of his grace. Peter says, for this very reason. What reason? The reason that God has been, been at work in you. Well, let's look at how God has been at work in you. Let's look at this chart we drew from last time. You see what we said? His divine power has given us everything we need. So you see that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has exercised power to give us everything that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. So He called us by His goodness, His moral excellence, and he, uh, through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. So through the promises of God, he enables us to grow in the likeness of his own son. So we're becoming like Jesus Christ. That's the amazing miracle. Now, some of you are throwing us way off. We can hardly believe it's happening, but indeed it is. You're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. So that through him you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So the power of God enables us to escape corruption. His calling leads us to be more like Jesus Christ, to be the godly man through all we need. And what is it, is, what is it that we need? We need the knowledge of God. We need to know Him personally. We need to have His promises about the future so that we do not quake in our boots. And we need participation in the divine nature. We need His help that we may lead a holy life. So, you see, that's what God has done for us. That's kind of a schematic of verses 3 and 4. From last time. So Peter is saying, for this very reason, for this very reason that God is at work in you, now with reverence and awe, take up the work He's doing. You say, oh, God, you take care of that. I'll handle the bottom line. You make me a holy person. I'll go handle the bottom line. Forget that. You're, you want to make me a holy person? That's my number one goal in life. Whatever He wants to do with you, that becomes the agenda. So Peter is saying, for just for your reason, this is what God is doing. Get on with it. And be sure that you're, you're pouring your efforts into things that really count from God's perspective. Because from God's perspective is the true perspective. So for this very reason, then he says, make every effort. That is, it becomes the top priority. As I think I mentioned last time, the problem so often in seeking to live a holy life is that we're trying to do this part-time trying to do it on the side, trying to do it without having it affect negatively any of our relationships, any of our business dealings, uh, any of our social life, any of our NFL football watching. Any, you know, we try to do this on the side so that it really doesn't hurt. Oh, you could be a Christian and do this too. And we just try to combine it all together. No, look, if you're going to get involved in this, as we said last time, it's going to take everything you've got. And it has to be the number one thing in your life. In fact... I think we said last time, you're not going to be an effective disciple of Jesus Christ unless it's number one. And in every one of our lives, we have things that compete 
And in order to follow Christ, you are constantly renouncing other things that are competing for number one in your life. And you'll be in that business for the rest of your life, renouncing the things that compete for number one. And if you don't go into that business, you cannot be a disciple. Here's what Jesus said. He said, whoever does not deny himself and take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He said, if you do not love me more than your mama, you cannot be my disciple. If you, in fact, he's, he used the word hate. Unless you hate everything else by comparison. It's, it's, it's an it's a overstatement or a, a figure of speech to say that by comparison with our love to him, everything else looks like hatred because he is an unrivaled number one. So for this very reason that God is at work in you, for this very reason that the Trinity has poured out his infinite power to accomplish the work, to create many sons of God, that this is number one on his agenda, for this very reason, make it your top priority. Then you're going to grow. You are. If this is your number one priority, then you're going to grow. So uh, make every effort, or as it can be translated, with diligence. For this very reason, with diligence do these things. So this is not easy work. It's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, to be a Christian, really, to seek to be a consistent Christian. And one reason it's hard is that I fail, not just every day, not just every hour, but in a very noticeable way every minute. There is continual failure. And some guys don't like to have to fail all the time. So we'll just lower the bar. Lower the bar. Get it down where you can handle it. That's what the Pharisees did. You know, it sounds like their ethic was so high, so extraordinary. They were the holy ones in community. And, and all they did was they lowered the bar to where humans with great effort can achieve it on their own and not fail. That's not where the bar is. The bar where Christ has it is to be like Jesus Christ. Heart, mentality, deeds, words, the whole picture. So, Which means you're going to be in massive failure all the time. So you say, well, what's the point? The point is this. It's by repentance and faith that we aspire to get closer and closer to Jesus Christ. And it is by repentance and faith that increasingly we are. But you can't do that if your pride is telling you, I'm going to at one point have to be able to say, I'm successful. That's exactly when you're not successful. You've lowered the bar or you've massively overestimated your moral life. So you have to be, by humility, willing to accept God's forgiveness every moment you take a step. You can't take a step even in the right direction without His grace, but even when His grace is working through you, you're still, you're, you have still, still have sin in your flesh. So this requires enormous humility to be repentant all the time, to be a penitent sinner all the time, and to accept His forgiveness all the time, and to accept the righteousness of Jesus Christ as your only perfect standard and your only boast for success all the time. He's all you've got all the time. That's hard work. Never to be able to rise up and say, look what I did. Because what you did is as filthy rags, as the Bible says. Our righteousness, that is our best, stinks by comparison with Jesus Christ. But it's stinking a little less all the time. Now, how is that for success? 
What, you want to boast about that? So there's nothing to boast about except Him. But in repentance and faith, we are becoming increasingly more like Jesus Christ. He's just not anything to boast about. That's the reason it's so hard. It's very hard emotionally. It's very hard spiritually until you really get into it and you realize, you know what? I delight in this. Because as I'm walking with Him, the only one who gets honor is Him. And I happen to love Him. And so through my humiliation, He is exalted. And I like that. And so you develop an appetite for this, but it, it's, it's hard work. It's like learning to like broccoli. George Bush obviously gave up on it a long time ago. His mama didn't work hard enough to get him to like broccoli. But, it, it is, but then once you develop a taste for broccoli, hey, I like it, you know, even without hollandaise sauce. Well, here you have it. Make every effort. It's going to be hard work. Now, notice our faith will grow because of his grace. It has to be as the top priority, and it grows with a fullness and I want you to see what this fullness is. You know, as I have a, I have a 25-cent word here. Sorites uh, is the word. Sorites. Sorites is a literary term that describes perfectly the literary device that Peter is using in uh, verses, oh, verses 5 through 7. You start with one principle and you add another one. And then that becomes the subject of the next verb and you add another object and that object becomes the subject of the next verb and you add another one until you get to the end. So you can see here that's what, exactly what uh, Peter is doing. He's got, uh, he's got faith and then goodness. You know, add, add to your faith goodness. Then you add to your goodness knowledge. And you add to your knowledge self-control. And then you pick up self-control as a subject. Perseverance is the object. Then perseverance is the subject. Godliness is the object. Godliness is the subject. Brotherly kindness is the object. Brotherly kindness is the subject. Love is the object. Now, why do you use sororities? What's the point? Well, generally speaking, the point is not so much to take every little element and say, now this is the way you build a Christian life in sequence. You don't do that with, with, that, with sororities in any case. The, the, the advantage of sororities in a literary setting is you're basically saying, you see how this builds and it gains momentum and comes to a climax until you reach the summit, which is love. And you have to start with what you have, which is faith. So the point is we're going from faith to love and we're going to go through this building uh, sequence. Now, also, uh, you have in the middle, you have all these aspects of Christian character that are the way in which this fills out until you hit the summit of love. And I, I just know the reason I'm, I'm warning on this is because uh, I remember one time I was in a group of, oh, maybe four or five men. This is 25, 20 years ago maybe. And we were talking about what is the model what, for mature discipleship. If someone were really walking with Christ, what kind of person would they look like? And we tried to come up in the Bible with all different kinds of models. And one guy went straight to this text. He said, oh, I got it right here. You have Peter, he just lays out in sequence all the developmental, pedagogical, you know, pedagogical developmental approach here to, to be a mature Christian. He had it all in sequence. That's not Peter's point. He's not trying to show you. Now, this is how you do it. You start off with faith. And then after you get faith really nailed down, then you want to add, put in a little goodness. And after you get the goodness in there, then put in some knowledge. No, that's not what he's saying. That's, that's not the way this literary device works. Because it's, it's, that's inorganic. Uh, think about the way you learn anything. You're kind of learning everything at once. You know, 
uh, maybe I speak as a multitasker, but you just you kind of take everything in and you intuit and they blend and meld together in, in kind of a mysterious way. So you can't do this in sequence, but let's take the major points that are being made in Sorites, and that would be, first of all, you do start with faith. And that's a very important point, that you are not going to get anywhere, and I'm not going to get anywhere if we do this by the flesh. This is going to be by faith. That means that you and I are going to grow as disciples of Jesus by trusting in Him. Does this mean that I'm not working? No, you're working. But you're working by trusting Him to work through you. Paul says, when he's talking about the great end of his apostolic ministry, which is to present the cosmos perfect before Jesus Christ. Now, there's a, there's a pretty big goal. <laughs> you say, well, I'd like to transform Memphis. How about the cosmos? <laughs> Paul says, I want to present everybody perfect in Christ. Then he says, I agonize over this. He says, I work hard at this to present everybody perfect in Christ. But then notice what he says. I work hard with his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. So he says, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I agonize. Agonizo is the Greek word. I agonize over this. I labor over this. But I do it with His energy. This is the mystery of the Christian life. That yes, you're working hard at it, but you are not working out of your flesh. You're working out of the Spirit of God working through you and through your spirit to enable you to take the step. Now, your step is not perfect, but it is inspired and, and led by the Spirit of God. So the first thing is, if you're going to walk with Jesus Christ and be productive and effective and assured, you're going to have to work hard. But keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Now, here's how it works in, in Paul's language in Romans 7 and 8. In Romans 7, he says, here's the way of the law. That is, that you look at the law and you see these commandments. One, two, three, all the way through ten. Got it. Then you look over here at the world and by your own moral power, you're going to take the law and put it into practice in the world. And it will clobber you. Paul says, why is it the very thing I don't want to do, I do. And the very thing I do want to do, I don't do. I'm looking at the law and every time I look at it, all it does, it arouses it within me, the desire to do the wrong thing. What's wrong? He says, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The harder I try, the worse I get. So that's what we call paint-by-the-number sanctification. Painting by the numbers. Just, okay, the number is this. Get the little paint and paint here. And you're just doing it mechanically. That's pharisaical sanctification. That's moralistic sanctification. That's sanctification by the flesh, which is a contradiction in terms. Paul says... But thanks be to God who delivered us. And how does He deliver us? You go right into Romans 8. The law of the Spirit of life has put to death the law of sin and death. What is the law of the Spirit of life? I no longer look at the law, but I look at the Spirit. I look to Him for my strength. Then I can look at the law by the Spirit, and I can ask Him to help me walk in obedience to His law. 
So I'm, I see the law. I see the ethical code here. I know it's there. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Obey your parents. I see all that. But I'm saying, God, help me. I lift my head up. I'm trusting Him. It's the same instinct you used. If you're walking with Christ today, it's because you began to look up for the forgiveness of your sins. You stopped trying to pay off your sins yourself. That's the old way of doing it. Well, I'll just make it up. And you stop doing that because you realize all you're doing is digging a bigger and bigger hole. So you gave up on that. And you looked up. And you said, I receive the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on my behalf. I receive the perfect life of Jesus Christ lived in my place for my righteousness. I receive that. Hallelujah. That's called faith. You trust Him. Now what you do in sanctification is the same instinct. It's the same motion. You're lifting up and you're saying, I trust you, Holy Spirit. I trust you to take a crumb like me. I trust you to take a person who's naturally wicked like me. I trust you. I'm going to lean on you. You come now and take over and fill me with yourself and empower me to obey the law of God and to walk in this life. I'm no longer painting by the numbers. This is a Rembrandt. The artist has taken over. And when Rembrandt takes over, you can forget the numbers. It's a work of art. It's intuitive. And now the intuition of God takes over and begins the work. It's by faith. It all starts by faith. So however you do this, whatever method you use in seeking to be a disciplined follower of Jesus Christ, it must be led by the Spirit. It has to be actively by faith. Sanctification is by faith just as justification is by faith. You don't receive Jesus Christ by faith and now you got it. take off on your own. Forget that. You're going to fail. Be unproductive, ineffective, and you will not have confidence. But you trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation and you continue to trust Him for your salvation. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is He who is working in you for His own good pleasure. So it starts with faith. Then secondly, it continues with character. It continues with character. So if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you cannot simply say, well, you know, when I was 14 years old, I came forward and down the dusty old trail and boy, I did whatever good... Good Presbyterian Baptist ought to do. I gave my life to Jesus. Now I've lived like hell ever since then. But you know what? Once saved, always saved. That's what I believe. The Bible says baloney on that. Yeah, once saved, always saved. But if you're really saved, you're not going to be living like the devil. You're going to be walking with him. There's going to be character development in your life. So, yes, indeed, there can be that age of 14 years old. You came down the dusty trail. You may have been baptized when you're an infant. Oop, did I say that? Yeah. You can be baptized when you're an infant. But you meet Jesus Christ savingly along the way. And as soon as you meet Him and put your trust in Him, you begin walking in a way that is developing your character. And if you're, if you're really walking with Jesus Christ, I tell you, I'm looking at a crowd. There's going to be character changes. <laughs> you know, We're not by nature superior moral beings, okay? Let's just, let's just put it up there where it belongs. You know? we, we, this is the truth. We need a lot of help. So if this crowd's walking with Jesus Christ, we're going to see massive changes. There's going to be character development. And you can describe this in a number of ways. Peter starts with goodness, which we saw last time from verse 1-3. It's just a word. It's a, really a, a pagan sort of word for moral excellence. Peter's speaking to, to a pagan crowd, and so he uses their language. He says, look, there's going to be moral excellence in your life. For an example, 
uh, leave your finger right there, or you don't even have to leave your finger because you can easily come back. Just go one more book in your Bible over to First John. That's the next book in your Bible, a few pages over. First John, look at chapter 2 at the top of page two, uh, 2035. And look at verses 3 through 6. John says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is sitting a little bit. No, he's a liar. Pretty strong language from the apostle of love. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Now compare that verse. With, look at the previous chapter. 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, John's saying two things. Number one, if you, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. On the other hand, if you say you really know God and you're not walking with Him, you're also a liar. We've got lots of liars in Memphis, Tennessee. Lots of liars. Now, they may not be intentional liars, but they are de facto liars. They say, oh, I know God. Yeah, I know. I know. And they're not walking in the paths of Jesus Christ at all. That's, that's called hypocrisy. It's a lie. It's inconsistent. Oxymoron. You can't have a non-growing Christian. So you're going to have moral development if you're walking with Jesus Christ. It's automatic because He's living in you and, he, and He's alive and something that is living grows and develops. Secondly, knowledge. Now, you could say this is knowledge of the Bible and certainly that would be true. You could say it's knowledge of good sense. That would certainly be true. As you grow in Christ, you can have better sense. But here, I believe we're talking about a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, a personal relationship with Him. You just know how to cozy up to Him. And, of course, you do that through the ordinary means of grace, through prayer, through the Word of God, through the sacraments in your church, through worship, through the fellowship of the brotherhood. You're getting closer to Him. I feel closer to Him on Thursday mornings from 6.30 to 7.30 just because I'm studying the Bible with you. I'm getting to know Him. And I, after a while, you, know, you, you study the Word for a few years, and you begin to develop instincts for what would please God. You just, your intuitions begin to change a little bit. That's called growth. That's part of moving on from faith. And that must happen. A saving knowledge, a knowledge, a personal intimacy with Him. Thirdly, self-control. I have some things in me that rise up as just immediate issues. I, I have a, an anger problem. And I, I, you know, something happens, I get thwarted. I mean, just the other day, I, I, I realized that this is a, innocuous. I'm not telling you the really difficult stuff, but innocuous case. You know, I had something I was trying to fit into a drawer and it wouldn't go. You know how it does. I mean, it, just, it just kept getting worse every time. I, and I just found myself getting so angry. I almost took that thing and threw it across the room. Now, that's what I would have done, you know, 35 years ago. But I found that, you know, uh, as I've gotten to know Christ, I realized, you know what? That is not expressing my trust in Him nor my gratitude for the fact that I even have a drawer and a desk to sit behind. Uh, and, you know, once you get things in perspective and you know Him and you're practicing His presence, you don't want to be like a fitful little five-year-old acting in a foolish manner. 
So you get control of yourself. So self-control comes from your faith, which is appropriating His presence. And you just start to develop different instincts and you, you start to nab those things that by nature are in there. If you have an anger problem, you start to nab it. You start to nip it. You know, as Barney Five says, nip it, nip it. You start to nip it in the bud. So self-control comes with walking with Jesus Christ and certainly perseverance is there. Uh, you develop perseverance. How do you develop it? Well, Paul says in Romans 5, 3, and 4, here's, here's, here's how you develop it. Through suffering. Suffering produces character. And character produces perseverance and hope. So perseverance, that remaining with Christ, that growing with Him through time, comes through the suffering. So when you find that you're walking with Jesus Christ and you're hitting the wall, hitting opposition, realize what He's doing. He's developing perseverance in you. Because Jesus said, those who persevere to the end will be saved. So people who start out and fall off were not really converted in the first place. That's what John says. They went out from among us because they were never of us. And as Jesus says in the parable of the soil, that the seeds are sown and there are plants that will spring up immediately, but they're in real thin soil and they're, under, they're on bedrock. And when the sun comes up, it starts to bake them and they wilt and die. Or the seeds are sown, the plants come up, and then the weeds come up and choke them, choke the life out of them, and they fall off. But some of the seed is put in fertile soil, and it grows and bears fruit. It's productive. And what he's saying is it's the soil that makes the difference. It's the same seed and the same sower, the same Jesus and the same gospel. But there's different soil. So you want to be sure you're cultivating the soil. And that's what yields perseverance. And perseverance is part of our development as, as disciples. And certainly godliness. Developing character that is like the Lord Himself. So remember, He has given us all that we need for life and godliness. That's His objective with you, is to make you like His Son. Now, with His Son, He had a really good starting point. With you, well, we got another case. Your case is more difficult. But if He can raise His Son from the grave, surely He can raise you out of your corruption. And He has every intent to do so. And He is not weak. He's perfectly able to raise the dead. And that's what it's going to take to get us going. So He can do it. So we trust Him. We put our faith in Him to develop godly character, yeah, in people like us who have said bad words and done bad things and had bad thoughts. We trust Him. And He's going to develop that godly character so that we increasingly become like Him. Can I just put out four, four ways in which I think about this as I think about developing godly character in my life? And I, I feel like I have further to go than any of you. But here's what I do. First of all, in godliness, I develop a vision. What is it? What would a godly Sandy look like? And I'm not even sure I know. I think it's so far beyond my practice I'm not quite sure what it is, but, but I, I'm sure of this. It's the likeness of Jesus Christ. I know that. So when I am perfected in godliness, I will be like him. I will see him as he is. So you develop a vision for what would a godly Sandy look like. Now, that would be an interesting thing. Let's see. That would be, be nice. Well, he would be nice for one thing. <laughs> he would be a nice person. He would always be a truthful person. He would be an encouraging person. He would be an honest person. All, all the time and in every way. You begin to develop a vision for Christ-likeness and get that in your head. Nothing short of that 
is suitable for you as a vision for life. You were made for things greater than you usually have in your mind. So get your mind on the greatness for which you've been destined in Jesus Christ, and that is to be just like Him. So get the vision. And don't let anything else satisfy you fully but that vision. Secondly, use the means to get you toward that vision. And what are the means? Well, let's just talk about them. If you're not in prayer and asking Him to help you and confessing to Him your shortcomings and even your frustrations and asking Him to help you, it's just not going to happen because that is the first expression of faith. John Calvin said, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. And that sounds right to me. It's kind of like coming out of the womb, first thing you did, you remember? Take a deep breath. Well, actually, first thing you did was spit up all the stuff. And then you took a deep breath. So the first thing you need when you come out of the womb is get some air because now your lungs are your way of getting oxygen. The first thing when you're, you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you stop trusting yourself, stop paying by the numbers, forget all that, and you start looking for divine involvement in your life, first thing you do is breathe. You've got to pray. You've got to talk to Him. You've got to converse with Him. So get your prayer life going, your personal prayer life and your corporate prayer life. Uh, the, the, the prayers on Sunday are important. If, whether you read them out of a book or someone's leading you uh, from a lectern or you are in silent prayer with God's people praying. Praying corporately is important. Praying privately is important. And praying with your wife is important and your children. Pray and ask the Lord to sanctify you, to sanctify your family, sanctify your church. You have three basic units for which you are responsible to pray, including the world. Make that four. Your life, your wife, <laughs> your life, your family, and your church, and the world. Pray for them. Get that conversation going. And then the second means I would mention is certainly the Scriptures. That's the reason we're here this morning. The reason we're here this morning is not so that we're better informed sinners, but rather so that we take the Word of God and we apply it. We learn what the will of God is for human beings. The Bible teaches us fundamentally two things. Who is God and what's His will for our lives? So we're learning who He is because He's the one that we're imitating and we're learning how He has directed our lives. And we become, we become students of this book. It's not just preachers who would be students of this book. It's every single follower of Jesus because it's His voice. He's the one talking to you. And so let Him talk to you in the Scriptures. Continue to study them. Gain understanding of every book in the Bible. Why is it there? What is, what's its main message? Where do I go uh, to learn about this thing or that thing in the Scriptures? So your whole life is an educational process. You're not going to grow as a disciple if you don't listen to His voice and if He never hears yours in prayer. So you've got this conversation going in both ways. The third means I would mention is your brothers in Christ. When you come to Christ, you do not come just as an individual. You come and join as a group. When Jesus called his disciples, he called them together. And even when he was in his most intimate setting with Peter, James, and John, there were three of them, you just don't find Jesus you know, taking one guy off on a retreat. He'll take us off on a retreat. He takes us together. So we need each other in a number of ways. But I'm just speaking from my own experience of weakness. I need guys around me. I need guys that know certain levels of my life. I have some who know me really well. I have some who know me well. I have some who know me. And I have some who, with whom I'm acquaintances. All those people help me in different ways. The ones who know me really well help me the most, of course. 
And they're the ones who know my life-controlling problems. They're the ones who know my repetitive sins. They're the ones who know what I'm struggling with. And they're the ones who can ask me the most intimate questions about what I've been doing lately without offense because they've proven their loyalty to me. And I have every reason in my right, when I'm in my right mind to believe that they have my welfare at stake. And they're not just being judgmental. And they're not just being curious. They're taking co-ownership for my life. And therefore, when they ask me a question, my answer in some way reflects upon their influence on my life. In other words, a lot, kind of like a mother. You know, who really cares about you. And so you have these loyal friends. David had loyal friends. And those loyal friends can get in and ask you things because you trust that they're not trying to run you down and they're not trying to show that they're better than you are. They really care intensely about your life. Do you have people like that in your life? You need them. And you'll find people who are productive and effective and assured in Christ. They have these people. Paul had Barnabas, he had John Mark for a little while, then he had Silas, he had Luke, he had Timothy, he had Titus, he had Priscilla and Aquila. He had people around him all the time. And every time he writes, he sends greetings from people, greetings to people. He's constantly talking about his constellation of friends who help hold him accountable as well. And he's holding them accountable. So in growing in Christ, in growing in godliness, it's going to involve having a vision for what you're really shooting for. Aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. Aim for Christ, you'll at least you'll be tacking back and forth, but at least you'll be going in that direction. And then start to use the means of prayer and the Scriptures and of mutual accountability in the brotherhood. That's godliness. Now, that leads, of course, to his next statement, which is brotherly kindness. And brotherly kindness must suffuse everything you're doing if you're walking with Christ, you can't say, I'm an Orthodox Christian. Hey, look, I not only believe my Bible, I believe the back of the Bible. I believe the concordance. I believe the Westminster Confession of Faith. I believe the, the weight scale, you know, on the back. I believe everything in the Bible. And then be a blockhead who can't get along with people. All you're doing is undermining the faith. When you say, I'm a believer in all this truth, and you go out and treat people like their worst enemy and take advantage of them in the marketplace. Really taking advantage of them. And I'm talking about beyond the law now. I'm talking about the deep ethic of the heart. And you know, there are a good number of people in this room, you're making plenty of money. And really the last thing you need to do is shave one more figure off the bottom line. Or add one more percentage to the top line. You know what you really need is godliness, which includes brotherly kindness, which includes helping to carry your brother's load. And there's a lot of money and time spent on things that could be sacrificed in order to put it into relationships. I just challenge you to think about it. If you're walking with Jesus Christ today, how do you think he'd have you spend your time? I'm not saying he wouldn't have you work hard. I believe in working hard. I work hard on my business. And I believe that when we're in work, we should be working hard. Work six days a week. We work five. But the Bible says work six and take the seventh off and worship me on the seventh day. So you have every right to work hard. I'm just simply saying that our overall work, our vocation, is a calling to follow Jesus Christ. Vocari is Latin for calling. Vocation is a calling. And the calling that you have is the same calling I have. I'm not called to be a preacher. I'm called to be a disciple. 
You're not called to be a banker. You're called to be a disciple. And out of your discipleship, you believe the best way for you to serve Jesus in your occupation is to go be a banker. Fine. I believe mine's to be a preacher. Fine. But my calling is to be a disciple. And in that calling, you will find that every day of Jesus' life, every moment of every day, he's loving other people. And he's treating his brothers like brothers. And people say, hey, your family's outside. You know, your mom and your brothers and sisters. He says, hold it just a minute. My family are those who are walking with me. My family are the people of God. Family. So we must learn to deal with family. We give to them. We take up for them. We confront them. We expect good things out of them because we're invested in them. They're brothers. And so wherever it is you're in church, you must be developing familial affections, brotherly affections toward the people around you. And if you're not doing that, let me tell you what else John says is a liar. A liar, John says, is a person who says he loves God and does not love his brother. And a barometer that shows probably in the best way how much you really know God is revealed in how much you really care for your brother. And I'm talking about what Rocky Anthony calls the EGRs, extra grace required. Loving the EGRs. That's brotherly love. And so often... Guys will say, you know, I'm really impressed with the Christian faith. I'm really impressed with Christian theology. I'm really impressed with some of the things they do in their external mission. I'm really, I'm impressed with that particular Christian over there and that particular Christian over there. And then they get in the church and they go, oh, gosh, I didn't know there were so many geeks and ghouls around. You know, this is the people of God, this bunch. This is embarrassing. Yeah, we are. (laughs) What can I say? We are. (laughs) And we're God's people. We're his brothers. And he lives in us. And sometimes I think he especially lives in the EGRs. And he says, inasmuch as you have done this to the least of these, my brothers, the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. And that's the reason that John, who was a very close disciple of his, said years later in his epistle, if you say that you love God whom you've not seen and you do not love your brother whom you have seen, you're a liar. So we must learn, we must cultivate. It's learned. You don't get this by just human instinct. There is a human instinct of connectivity, social connectivity. But this is deeper than this. This is cultivated. It's learning to love your brother who otherwise is not particularly lovable. That's brotherly kindness. And what Peter is saying is a faith that is real is going to be growing in your ability to love people that otherwise would completely turn you off. And you're adopting them as brothers because you got adopted as a son by a very wealthy man. He's not a man at all. A very wealthy being, God himself. And so you as the adoptive son who had nothing to commend yourself and you've come into this incredible inheritance, I'm not going to be looking down your nose at other people who don't appear really to belong to the family. Well, who are you? Where'd you come from? You see how humility and continual repentance and faith leads us to love one another when by nature we wouldn't. By nature, we're all elitists. Every single one of us. And all you have to do is to just give you one chance to be in the fast crowd and to be accepted. Just give you one chance and see what your instincts are. Everybody's the same by instinct. So we all tend to exclude 
and include those that somehow we've given superior status to on one grant basis or another. And what the Bible is saying, what God is saying, I want to cut through all that human sinfulness, all those categories you've got, and I want you to treat people like brothers because they're my children, not because you think there's somebody you'd like to muck it up with. They're my children. And you don't pick my children. I pick my children. And so when I pick my children, they become your brothers, and you will learn to love them. And that's part of how faith begins to work out in practice. It's together. It's what God has done for us and what we're doing. And then notice the summit of the mountain. It ends with love and brotherly kindness to love. Now, why would, how are these different? Well, love actually is a more embracive term. Brotherly kindness is the word from which we get Philadelphia. Uh, it's brotherly love. Love, Jesus describes it this way. Love is like what God is now doing for his whole creation. He loves his children with a special covenantal love. But you know what? He loves the wicked too. And Jesus says, let me prove it to you. When it rained last night, did it only rain on Taylor's yard? <laughs> you know, Taylor's such a wonderful Christian. You know, and Taylor goes out, hey, sorry y'all didn't get any rain. <laughs> I just got it on my lawn. God really loves righteous people. No. I got rain too. <laughs> Down the street. And you know, so he rain he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And when the sun comes up this morning, is it only going to shine on you guys who really lived a great Christian life yesterday? Nope, that sun's going to shine on everybody. And Jesus said, This is the reason that Christians who are following Jesus Christ love their enemies, not just their brothers. Now, we have a special affection that connects us to the brothers who are adopted sons of God. True. But we have an overflowing love that goes out to all human beings in their worst sinfulness. Try that on for size. This is where faith is going to take you. So you can see what, what Peter is saying, that our faith must grow. It grows, be, uh, because, uh, it grows because of His grace. It grows as a top priority in our lives. And it grows with a fullness that we don't have time to describe. We're going to hit it in five minutes, these last four verses, 8 through 11. So first of all, our faith must grow. But secondly, a growing faith brings great benefits. He says, if you possess these qualities, what, what qualities is he talking about? The qualities we've just been talking about. Faith and love. If you possess faith and love and everything in between, all the other character traits, if you possess these things, in increasing measure, number one, we will be effective and productive. He says if you possess these things, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're walking with him and asking him to produce character in you, you really don't have to worry about it. Think about it. Here's the way Jesus puts it. I'm the vine. You're the branches. You say, okay, I'm going to graft myself right in there and then I'm going to start bearing fruit. <clears throat> No, that's not the way you do it. You just, as he said, just abide in me. Just get yourself tapped into that vine. And guess what? Hey, chill out. You're going to bear fruit because you're in him. That's all it takes. You're in him. And he is going to bear fruit through you. And you don't grunt and groan out of the flesh and out of your moral exercise. You're trusting him in repentance and faith all the time. And you will be productive. You will bear fruit. Jesus put it this way. 
Come, follow me. Now there's the hard part. Come, follow me. Be an honest, earnest follower of me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll take care of that part. You want to be a great evangelist? You just come with me. Follow him. And as you follow him, people can say, where are you going? I'm following him. Okay, I'll go with you. And they, they follow you, and then you become a fisher of men. So that's what you want to do is realize that if you will focus on that vision of Christ's likeness, you'll find all kinds of good things happen in your life. You'll be productive. You'll be effective. Let's move on. Secondly, you will not be blind and ungrateful. You say, well, thanks a lot. Well, listen, I hate to tell you this, but by nature, you are blind and you are ungrateful. And you forgot something. You forgot that God took care of your sins and removed the penalty for them. You forgot that. You must have, the way you acted yesterday. You must have forgotten something. Well, if you keep remembering, you're going to find, if you keep working out this godliness, you'll find out that you won't be blind and ungrateful. Because when you are blind and ungrateful, for one thing, your buddy who's close to you is going to come and say, you know what, you're acting like you're blind man and ungrateful. And you'll say, thank you, brother, after you pick him up off the floor. Uh, now, uh, see, we have assurance of salvation. Now, some can read this text and it sounds like he's saying a, a, an additional thing. You know, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. So now you're going to live this godly life. Now let me tell you something else. Get your calling and election sure. I think he's saying the same thing. I, th I think he's saying this is how you make your calling and election sure. Trust in him. Walk with him. Move toward love. Even enemy love. Live in him. Live the life he's given you. And you're making your calling and election sure. And the reason I say this is, just once again, when you get time, go to the next book in your Bible, 1 John. And John says at the end, he says in chapter 5, these things we write to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John writes his gospel so that we'll have eternal life. He writes his epistles so that we'll know we have it. And then in that letter, he shows you things like I just showed you. Walk with him. Love your brothers. Profess Jesus Christ as Lord. And you will be assured. So walk with Him. Now, ultimately, the highest form of assurance is simply trusting Him. It's kind of like if you ask me, do you think your wife's having an affair right now? I mean, right this very minute. And I go, well, no. You say, well, why not? Well, she's sleepy. <laughs> no, you, know, you say, no, no, really. Well, so no, why, what? You're over here. She knew you're going to be here, and she knows you're stuck for at least two more minutes. What makes you think that she's not having an affair with a neighbor? I said, obviously, you don't know, Allison. <laughs> I don't think she's capable, you know. I, I don't, this would be the last thing she'd ever want to do. You say, well, why? Because I know her. That's why. And that's the way it becomes with you and God. Ultimately, it's intuitive. The highest form of assurance is simply you just know him. And he made his promises to you. I'm sorry, I know him. And I know I'm known by him. His sheep will know his voice and they will follow him. And he will give them everlasting life. And he will never let them go. John chapter 10, I know him. But in our tutelage as youngsters... We learn more of His love and assurance with Him as we walk with Him. And you can't really have assurance. You can only have presumption. If you say you know Him, but you're not walking in the light. That's presumption, not assurance. Assurance is walking in the light, and therefore I know that I know Him. And it's a gift from God. I don't think you can be effective without it. And then lastly, gloriously, not only will you know that you are saved. He says it. Make your calling and election sure. Not only will you have that, but you will indeed be in the end saved. So what you knew to be true will come true. 
And I can't introduce you to that until you get there. I mean, you're just going to find out. Wilson just didn't preach even a half of it. You know, I, he, he just, this is a, so much better than I ever dreamt. I know you're going to say that, and that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. But Peter says, you will never fall. Like these false teachers in Second Peter 2, 20-22, they're falling off and they're leading other people to fall off. And that's one of the, the, the fruits of false teaching. It causes people to fall off. But you will never fall when you're walking with Jesus Christ in righteousness and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You will enter the kingdom. You will see it with your own eyes. You will be wowed with the fullness of His salvation one day. And now you're, you're walking. You're seeing through a glass dimly. But one day you will see face to face. That's the assurance that a disciple of Jesus Christ walks with that makes him productive and effective, confident in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your kindness to us in giving us everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Yourself, the rich and wondrous promises You've made, and even participation in the divine nature. And thank You for the calling to walk with You, to exercise our own energy, to make our own effort by the power of Your Spirit so that we become partners in becoming like Jesus Christ. We pray, oh God, please help us. We cast ourselves upon Your mercy today. And may today be another day of knowing Jesus Christ and being productive, effective, and assured of His love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Yeah.